Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor John Lindell, lead pastor at James River Church. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. Well, if you're new this morning, we're in a series that we've entitled Times Two. It's a look at the life of Elisha. We come this morning to 2 Kings chapter 5, 2 Kings chapter 5. But on your way there, I'd like you to turn with me to Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. The reason why is because although all the stories in the Bible are true, every bit true, we're reminded every now and then of the veracity of Scripture when we see Jesus quote it or reference it. And the story we're going to look at in 2 Kings chapter 5 is one that Jesus uses as an illustration in a sermon that he preaches at Nazareth, at his hometown in Luke chapter 4. Let's look at it, verse 23. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. What they're saying is, Jesus, we've heard all about the miracles you've done in Capernaum. And Capernaum actually was one of the cities where Jesus did most of his miracles. And they're saying, we've heard about it, we're just not sure we believe it. We'd like you to do something that would wow us, because after all, we watched you grow up. In fact, in Matthew chapter 13, they say, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Joseph's son? Aren't his brothers here with us? Aren't his sisters here with us? How can little Jesus, who we watch grow up, how can he be doing all these things? And the Bible says he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. This is earlier, the start of his ministry, and they're saying, we like to see a miracle. We like to see something that would wow us, something that would convince us. Verse 27, Jesus says, there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed. Only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. How furious were they? Well, they got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. Now, that's angry. I'm glad we don't have a cliff near James River. Just teasing. <laughs> you say, why are they mad? What's going on here? Jesus' point is this. God's people are always missing God's miracles because they won't believe. Too many times, God's people are questioning what's happening. Well, I don't know if I could see this, if I could hear the doctor's report, if I could see this, if I could see that. And what happens is, in that mindset of questioning what God has done and what God is doing, people miss out on what God would have done. It made them mad. This then is a story. As we go back to 2 Kings, it's a story about faith. 
Last week was a story about how God does miracles in response to need. There was a famine, and we have two instances of him feeding people. This week, the passage is on how God does miracles in response to faith. We know that because the first words spoken by a person in the passage in verse 3 are words of faith, and the last words spoken by a person in the passage in verse 15 are words of faith. So this is a story about faith. To set the stage then, let me just remind you of Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 where the writer of Hebrews says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. Doesn't say it's hard. Doesn't say that, that you know, sometimes you can. It says without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe two things. First of all, that he exists, that there's a God, a God of the universe, a God who is the creator, a God who is capable, a God who is powerful, a God who delights to display his power on behalf of people. And second, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, when it comes to God's work in the lives of people, I I would suggest to you that people will find themselves in one of three positions. The first is unbelief. There may be gradients of unbelief that span from, I don't believe there is a God, and I don't believe in a higher power, I think everything just happened, to the person who says, I would believe if. I would believe if I saw the pictures. I would believe if I read the doctor's report. I would believe if I had seen it. I would believe if it happened to somebody I know. I would believe it if I saw it right before my very eyes. Or if God did this, then I would believe. But the problem and cause of unbelief are always the same. Unbelief puts self at the center. You could say, for the person with unbelief, self is in charge. What I think, what I feel, what I believe, what I say, how I view it, unbelief is rooted in self-centeredness. The second position people can find themselves would be the position of belief. And belief says God can do it. Belief says God can do anything. He's God. I mean, he, if he wants to, he can do it. It's not as strong a position as the person who has faith, but at least it makes room for people in people's lives for God to move. Jesus said this to the Father. He said, "If uh, all things are possible for him who believes. In other words, belief opens up a huge realm of possibility of God's working in the lives of people. But belief is not the same as faith. Though the words may in places in the Bible be used interchangeably, there is a difference between the person who believes and the person who has faith. Let me just give you a scripture you can write down and bring it up. When, when the father has his son who's epileptic, and it turns out he, the epilepsy is caused by a demonic spirit. Uh, the father brings 
the son to the disciples. And here's the thing. They believe they can cast the demon out. They believe they can heal the boy. But they could not. Then when Jesus does it, in Matthew chapter 17, they come to him afterwards and they say, why couldn't we cast the demon out? And Jesus gives them three reasons. The first one is because you have so little faith. So obviously belief and faith are not the same thing. Belief is a, a willingness to say God can do anything. Faith, on the other hand, is God will do it. Belief says he can do it. Faith says he will do it. Faith has a certainty to it, a surety to it. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, now faith is being sure of what we hope for. You're not guessing. You're not hoping. You're sure and certain of what we do not see. We haven't seen it yet, but we're certain about it. We know that we know that we know that we know it's going to happen. This is faith. It's, it's more powerful, more effective than belief. Let me suggest to you this, and again, I won't take a lot of time with this, but in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament, there are three kinds of faith. There is saving faith. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Ephesians 2.8, and this not of yourself, it is the gift of God so that no man should boast. There is a saving faith. Then there is a serving faith. Romans chapter 12 says to each man is given a measure of faith. And then he goes through and says, if, if, your, if your gift is generosity or giving, then give generously. If your gift is leading, then lead diligently. If your gift is serving, then serve it with, with hospitality. The idea is there is faith to serve. I can do what I do because there's a gift God has given me, and I believe he has given it to me. And let me just say this for every, every person in this room. God has gifted you with things to enable you to serve. The problem for a lot of people is they don't know what their gifts are and they don't serve to put themselves in a position where potentially they would not only use the gifts they know they have, but discover the gifts they don't know they have. This is why growth track is so important. Because it helps a person discern that. It puts you on a dream team. And it's as you're on a dream team that you actually begin to discover not only how to use the gift you have, but you might find out there are gifts you didn't know you had. So there's saving faith, there's serving faith, and then there's supernatural faith. There's the gift of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there are gifts of faith. Where God supernaturally gives you the surety, the certainty that not only that he can do something, but that he will do something. Now, with all of that in mind, let's go back to 2 Kings chapter 5. And as we look at it, I want to center our thoughts on three areas. The first thing I want you to notice is this, the bold faith of if only. Let's read it, 2 Kings 5.1. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. So Aram would be modern-day Syria. Most people believe the capital was in Aleppo. He was a great man in the sight of his master, highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. 
He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. That phrase, he's a great man, that gets your attention. Why was he great? Well, he's highly respected. It's, it's the way he carries himself. It's the way he talks. It's the way he lives. It's the way he makes decisions. He's earned the respect of the king, the respect of his officers, the respect of his men, the respect of people in the community. He is respected. Would you notice as well, he is, um, he's been given victory. He's a valiant soldier. The Lord is using him. Though he doesn't know the Lord is using him, the Lord is using him. God can use unsaved people to accomplish his purposes, and Naaman is an example of that. He is totally, at this point, a pagan. He does not know the God of Israel. That will all change by the end of the passage, because God will touch his body, and that will touch his heart. But right now, he doesn't know God, but God is using him. God knows who he is. You'll notice that he is a valiant soldier. He is a Gabor Ha'il. He is, a, he is a, a man who is valiant. He is great in battle. He is strong. He is brave. He is courageous. God gives him victory. So we could say that this is a man who's climbed to the top of his field. He has reputation. He has respect. He has rank. But, verse 1, he has leprosy. He has respect, but he has leprosy. He has rank, but he has leprosy. He has reputation, but he has leprosy. And there's nothing he could do to fix it. Though the disease in itself was not fatal, it was certainly miserable and a horrible life once it was contracted. Most of us don't understand leprosy, so we read about it in the Bible. Let me give you a definition of it. Many have thought leprosy to be a disease of the skin. It is better classified, however, as a disease of the nervous system because the leprosy bacterium attacks the nerves. Leprosy's agent, M. lepri, is a rod-shaped bacterium related to the tuberculosis bacterium. Leprosy then is spread by multiple skin contacts as well as by droplets from the upper respiratory tracts such as nasal secretions. Very interesting that in Numbers 13, when God gives uh, the community uh, guidance on how to handle leprosy, he says if you're diagnosed with it, you got to cover your mouth. Got to stay away from people. Can't live in the community. Got to be away. Got to cover your mouth. Got to cry out unclean. I mean, all of this, the science supports the direction God gave them. Its symptoms start in the skin and peripheral nervous system outside the brain and spinal cord, then spread to other parts such as the hands, feet, face, and earlobes. Patients with leprosy experience disfigurement of the skin, bones, twisting of the limbs, and curling of the fingers to form the characteristic claw hand. Facial changes include the thickening of the outer ear and the collapsing of the nose. Tumor-like growths called lepro. Lepromas may form on the skin and in the respiratory tract, and the optic nerve may deteriorate. So you're going to go blind. You're going to lose your nose. You're going to lose the ends of your fingers. The largest number of deformities develop from loss of pain sensation due to extensive nerve damage. For instance, inattentive patients can pick up a cup of boiling water without flinching. It's a horrible death. And Naaman has it. Have all the things you want in the world, but if you lose your health, you can feel like you've lost everything. 
Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're in a physical battle of epic proportions. And I want to just say you're coming to the right place. And by that, I don't mean James River. I mean the God of the Bible who is healing people today. You say, well, why in Israel were people outcasts, but here in, in Aram or Syria they weren't? Because their culture was different. And so maybe it's possible as leprosy is not in the advanced stages, but his skin is now turned white. Sores have begun to break out on his face, and it is known that this great man, this great soldier, has leprosy. Verse 2. Now, bands from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria. Watch this. He would cure him of his leprosy. We don't know this girl's name. All we know is she is a slave in a foreign country, kidnapped from her country, taken as a captive as a result of acts of war. Probably that involved the killing of her family. If not the killing of her father, certainly the sale of her siblings and maybe her mother. And now she finds herself serving the wife of the commander who is responsible. I just simply mention that because it makes her statement of faith all the more powerful when you realize she could have been resentful. She could have been bitter. She could have been hateful. She could have said, well, you know, what goes around comes around, and you're getting what's coming to you because of what you did to my family. You deserve leprosy, and I'm happy you have it. We'd understand. But that's not her. This is a girl who has a forgiving spirit. This is a girl who has a faith-filled spirit. Can I just say this, that faith is impossible if your heart's not right? Faith is impossible if you're filled with unforgiveness. That's why James says when you come forward, if anyone sinned, he should confess his sins. At that moment, the idea is come repent and get right with God so that God can work in your life. And a part of what he works in your life is the faith to believe him, which is difficult if you have unforgiveness in your heart. Let me say this as well. Faith is impossible if what has been done to you is larger in your mind than what God will do for you. If your past is bigger than your future, and especially related to hurts, and I'm not minimizing anybody's hurts, I'm just saying God is bigger than all of whatever's been done to any one of us, and that's not minimizing it, it's just simply maximizing the greatness of our God. And at some point you gotta decide, do I wanna be full of faith 
that brings life to people and life to myself because her life, you can believe, is going to be completely different after this whole encounter. It's going to change her life radically. So here she is. She speaks up. She is probably the least influential person in the entire nation. She's a foreigner. She's a slave. She is a female. She has zero rights. She's viewed less as a person and more as property. She could have been so overwhelmed or aware of her insignificance relative to them that she could have said to herself, why say anything? Because no one will listen to me anyway. I mean, there's some today, and the reason why you won't stand up and say, if only you'd come to church, is because you're afraid no one will listen to you. Why would they listen to me? Why would they take me seriously? Why would they want to hear what I have to say? And you've marginalized yourself, not realizing that there is a power that is active when you in faith speak words of faith to people around you. When you can say to them, if only you'd come to church, I know God would do something in your situation. This girl had a bold faith. She had a certain faith. I love this. She says to him, if only he would cure him of his leprosy. I just want to ask you a question. When's the last time you said, if only? When's the last time you said, if only you'd come to DFL? If only you'd come to Living Free? If only you'd come to church? If only you'd invite Jesus into your heart. If only you'd let me pray for you. If only you'd let people pray for you. And in the same way, I would just say to everyone here today, if only you'd get in a life group. If only you'd be on a dream team and serve. If only you'd go to DFL. If only you'd tithe. If only you, all the things we could say, if only you would do it, you would see what God would do in your life, and it would be amazing. Verse 4. Naaman went to his master, the king, and told him what the girl from Israel had said. Now, the two most influential and powerful people in the nation are quoting her. That's the power of speaking faithful statements. You say, well, I just don't believe that that would happen for me. And that's really the problem, isn't it? The first few words in your sentence, I don't believe. You see, it's not just saying this statement. It's believing that when the statement is said, there are things that are happening because the weight of the Spirit is on your words and carries them to people's hearts and minds in a way that natural words don't go. This girl... She says it. They're saying it. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So now think about this. Again, I'm just so struck by this. You have one king 
sending a letter to another king, and you would think if one king's corresponding with another king, that behind the letter is somebody of great influence, and yet you have probably the least influential person in all of one nation, and maybe not much influence in the other nation, but now she is the one who is causing two kings to interact. Listen, let me just remind you how significant you are to God. We talked about that last week. One of the things that helps people walk by faith and live in faith is when they understand their significance to God. You are so, so significant. Listen, she might not have been significant to the king of either country or to the general of Aram, but this little girl was very significant to God. And her significance to God is what gives her the ability to be used by God in a powerful way that has been talked about for millennia since. Do you believe you matter to God? If you don't believe that, you will do little for him because you won't realize how much he wants to help you. This girl, she's, she has no connections, but she has the faith to say, if only. And I just think there are some people, and you're excusing yourself too quickly by saying, well, someone else would be better at inviting, somebody else would be better at praying, somebody else would be better at talking, but this girl reminds us that no matter who you are, no matter how insignificant you might seem to others, if you'll live with a bold faith, God will use your if only to not only change lives, but to change nations. Well, we've seen the bold faith of if only, and I want you to notice the second thing, the unbelief of I thought. Look at it in verse 5. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied, and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. Now, I've taken a moment to kind of calculate that out, to put that, because I don't think we really understand what's happening here. But if you calculate the value, you've got in gold 150 pounds of gold, which on Friday's market was $4.3 million dollars just in gold. You've got 750 pounds of silver, which on Friday's market was worth $254,000. Then you have clothing, which in our day, clothing might not be as valuable as it would be in that day. And so I was trying to think, well, what could I do to, to get an idea? And so I thought, okay, um, men's suit, what's the most expensive? I googled what's the most men's expensive men's suit, and it's $859,000 for one suit. It's got diamonds woven into it, so, you know, you can just lean over and say, honey, if you want, on my, um, <laughs> if you, if you want a suit that doesn't have diamonds, then you're down to the fifth most valuable suit, and it takes 200 hours to make it, to tailor it. It's called an ultimate bespoke, and it sells for $50,000, one suit. So if you have 10 of those, that's $500,000. If you add that all up, you're talking about $5.1 million that he's bringing to pay for his healing. 
which is the first sign of unbelief. Unbelief thinks you get what you pay for. Unbelief says you earn things. Unbelief says I'm a good person. I try to do good things. I try to go to church every now and then, and I get to go to heaven. That's unbelief. Unbelief doesn't understand anything about grace. Now watch what happens here. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, with this letter, I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Isn't that funny? I laugh every time I read it. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes, robes, and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me? Now listen, the king's not a believer, and so when you're not a believer, then one of your first responses to problems is what? Fear. Unbelief and fear always go together. I mean, my question to him is, don't you remember when the desert was filled with water? And if it wasn't you, it was your father. So why, how can you forget that? God did a miracle there. Don't you know that Elisha the prophet is right nearby? Uh, why don't you send him there? But you see, unbelief. Here's the problem with unbelief. And, and usually unbelief is disguised as I'm just more discerning. I don't buy all that because I'm a little more discerning. I'm a little smarter than everybody else. All those other people, Lindell's got them hoodwinked. I mean, he's, he's smooth, and they've drank the Kool-Aid, but I'm smart. James 3 says there's godly wisdom and there's demonic wisdom. And de Demonic wisdom can seem very smart, very discerning, very wise, but it's a demonic wisdom. That's the problem. And what happens is unbelief. This is, this is why unbelief is so damaging in a person's life. It blinds you to the things God has not only done in the past, but to the possibilities of what God wants to do in the future. What kind of possibilities? Jesus said this, all things are possible. To him who believes, anything's possible. When you're a person of faith, you just know anything's possible. And as a person of faith, you know God's able to do things you didn't even think of that are possible. But a person with unbelief lives in a very narrow world with parameters of fear on one side and cynicism on the other. Verse 8. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he'll know that there is a prophet in Israel. I, I love the faith and the confidence here. What if... The governor knew you attended James River, and he had a friend who had been diagnosed with terminal cancer, and he said, I'm sending my friend to you to pray for you, for you to pray for him that he might be healed of cancer. 
How would that set with you? Would you be like, you know, biting your fingernails, scared out of your mind, like what in the world? Or would you say, game on, game on, let's go. There's a God in Israel. There's a God who heals. The king's filled with fear. Elisha's filled with faith. The king has no hope. See, when you, when, you, when you live in unbelief, hope is very hard to come by. Because hope is only based on the best you can do. And that works really well when you're on your top of your game. But everybody has times when they're not at the top of their game. And then, then hope's hard to come by. And Elisha wasn't saying, oh, no, they expect me to heal a leper. No, Elisha's saying, send him here. We'll take care of it. Look what happens. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. So here's this huge entourage. You have to believe Naaman's a general. He's in enemy territory, so he's not going there alone. He's got at least a cohort, at least 600 soldiers mounted, probably more because of his rank. We, we read later that when the king sent into Israel a, a caravan to honor um, the prophet for things he had done, he, he sent 40 camel loads of stuff. So you've got camels that are, that are not only bringing the gold, but are also bringing all of the things this general needs to, to live according to the standard he's used to living. So you're talking a massive entourage here of servants and soldiers and horses and camels, and we know he's got a chariot in there and these troops that are there. And they pull up outside the house. And when they pull up outside the house, watch what happens. And Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you'll be cleansed. I mean, that's it. That's it. It's not like, hi, how are you? It's not like, welcome to Israel. It's not like, wow, can't wait for you to see what God's going to do for you. There's nothing except go do this and you're healed. Simple, straightforward, not a lot different than, hey, step into the aisle. Not a lot different than, hey, once you're prayed for, do a deep knee bend. Not a lot different than you want to receive Christ, just step out and come down. Very simple, very straightforward. But Naaman went away angry. If he'd been driving a car, you'd have heard the tires squeal as he flipped a U and took off. I mean, he was angry. And you can imagine him thinking, doesn't, I mean, what in the world? Doesn't he know what a big deal I am? Doesn't he know who he's dealing with? Doesn't he understand? Doesn't he understand I could cut his head off? I mean, he's, he's no doubt going through all the things. But you see, here's Naaman's problem. He's operating in the wisdom of unbelief. I've had people who are angry about the healings. I'm like, that doesn't even make sense. Why? 
It's the wisdom of unbelief. I mean, what else could you call it? I mean, that's what, that's what happens when people don't believe, they get angry. It's a part of demonic wisdom. It's a fruit of demonic wisdom. Verse 11, but Naaman went away angry and he said, I thought, there's the problem. I thought. See, unbelief, that's the big problem. I thought. I, I, I think it should be this way. I think that. I don't think I should have to raise my hand. I don't think I should have to come forward. I don't think I have to have people pray for me. I don't think I have to go to church. I think I can pray in the woods. I think I can pray on the golf course. I think I can pray in a boat. I think, I, I think this. I think, I, I think this. Unbelief, 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 unbelief. Can I just say this to you? Quoting the scripture, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. Your thinking is killing you. It's separating you from the goodness of God because you're too proud and you're too stubborn to take what the word says and just say, I believe. You're too smart for your own good. You're too wise. You're too critical. I think, I think, I think, I think. Who cares what you think? It's killing you. I thought he would surely come out to me. I thought he would call in the name of the Lord if somebody could heal me. I thought he would come out and, and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Some of you will never believe because you're too committed to what you think. Well, I think this. Well, I thought that. And you don't realize that is just a disguise for your unbelief. You think. Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways. Your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Don't you get it? You're thinking on an earthly, natural plane. And the natural things will pass away. And the eternal things will remain. And God's wisdom is eternal. And the spiritual realities are the greater realities. And whether you operate in belief that ultimately grows into faith or whether you hold to your own I think, I think, I think will determine what happens to you in life. Spiritually, it will create the reality you live in. Verse 12. Are not Abana and Farfar the rivers of Damascus better than any of the waters of Israel? See, he thinks. He, he knows more. I got better water in, in Aram. I got cleaner water in Aram. I got bigger rivers in Aram. He's right. The Jordan is a muddy little canal. 
I'm not being derogatory. I'm just saying what it is. Outside of flood stage, it's not very big. And it's not very deep. He says, could not wash in them and be cleansed? Hey, some of you are going to say, well, I didn't step into the aisle and I was still healed. Don't make the mistake of thinking God ignored your stubborn disobedience and graciously helped you to think you can keep doing that way because today he's letting you know that's over. I'm, I'm not saying that unkind. I'm just, he's, he's letting you know, hey, don't make a mistake twice. You, you, I was gracious to you, but don't trade on that thinking somehow you can keep doing your own thing and say, I don't want to do it. And it's not because it's me. Listen, I'm, I'm just saying, listen, there's something about the humility and the obedience and the hunger and the belief that comes together to bring a person a miracle. It's just, it's true. It's true at salvation. It's true at rededication. Listen, if a person says, you know, I don't think you have to go forward. I don't think you have to do that. I don't think you have to, then you know what? Are, will they be saved? Rarely, if ever. There's something about the humility and the saying, listen, if you're asking me to do that, I'm going to do it because I'm just so hungry for something I don't have and that only God can give me that I'm going to go and do whatever I have to do to get it. And can I just say that hunger and that humility will take you deep in God for the rest of your life. That's why you need to learn it at the beginning of your walk rather than try to find it later in your walk. Some of you, and I'm just going to be honest because my heart for you is to grow deeper in the Lord than you've ever been. But for some of you, the roadblock really is there's an absence of humility that will take instruction. And there's an absence of hunger that will press in deep for God. And both of those things will keep you from experiencing some things that only the humble and hungry will ever get. R.T. Kendall writes this. Why the Jordan River? Naaman reasoned that the rivers in Damascus were better than any of the waters of Israel. This is fleshly type thinking. People ask, why go to church? Why can't I pray at home? Why go to Toronto? You say, what's that? That was a place where God was moving historically. Now it's looked back on as, as a historic move of God, though some things happened that were very unusual. But R.T. Kendall is no flaming charismatic. He was a Reformed preacher who preached at Westminster Chapel in London, David Martin Lloyd-Jones Church, for 25 years. It's a very learned man. He's simply putting his finger on something that too often times we're quick to criticize some things and, and judge some things because we don't like some of the, the uh, trappings that surround it rather than looking at the heart of what God is actually doing. And sometimes we just want comfort rather than to be hungry and humble in pursuing God. I just want to ask you this. Are you more confident in your opinions than you are committed to obeying God's commands? Well, number three, there's a blessing of humble obedience. <sighs> Naaman's servants went to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? 
You know, there's no scientific basis for water cleansing leprosy. And why seven times? You say, well, that's the number of perfection. Well, that may be, but God does things sometimes three times, sometimes two times. What, what is happening here? I do think there's a picture of baptism somewhere in there, and, and we don't have time to think of it in that way. But it all comes down to this for Naaman. Will he be humble and obedient? And if he will, it will release God's blessing in his life in ways he can't begin to imagine. So verse 14, so he went down and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times. And I can just picture him thinking, this is the dumbest thing in the world. <laughs> and you can imagine the embarrassment. People may be seeing leprosy on other parts of his body. People watching this great general in a muddy river. And the first time, he's like, I can't believe I'm doing this. Second time, he gets to the fifth time, he's like, nothing is happening. Gets to the sixth time, he's like, well, I've done it this many times. And he comes out the seventh time. And his hands are restored. And he fills his nose, and it's back. He touches his ears, and he realizes they're normal. And suddenly, he realizes his flesh has been completely restored. And it's at that moment that a second miracle happens. We always focus on the first miracle, but it's a second miracle. Look at it. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the men of God, and he stood before him, and he said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except Israel. Now I know. Now I know. To wrap this up, let me just make a couple of observations. Number one, humility and obedience resulted in healing and a new heart. So I, I'm just going to be honest. The most important thing you can do today is give your heart to Jesus if you don't know him or if you're away from him to rededicate your life, whether you're here at this campus or another in-person campus, whether you're watching online. It's the most important thing you could ever do. But it required two things, straight up. It required humility to admit you don't know Jesus, and maybe other people thought you did, or to admit that you're not walking with him, and maybe other people thought that you were. Who cares what everybody else thinks? It takes humility to say, listen, I want to be right with God more than I want anything. More than I care what other people think, I want to be right with God. It takes a, a humble obedience to say, listen, you know what? I'm going to raise my hand. You asked me to raise my hand, I'm raising my hand. You asked me to walk forward, I'm going to, I'm going to walk forward. Thousands of people have done it. What makes you any different? I'm going to do what they did. I'm going to do it. I'm going to believe God's going to change my life. Unbelief says, I don't think I have to. I think I can just, I think this, I think that. Who cares what you think? I don't mean that unkind. It's just your thinking is crushing you spiritually. Number two, when God touches your life, the automatic and appropriate response is one of generosity and giving back to God. I mean, he comes and he says, please accept this gift from your servant. I mean, because he wants to give back. He's, gratitude is the mark of a changed life. Giving is gratitude, but let me just say this as well. So is living a holy life. 
And I close with this. R.T. Kendall writes this. The essential ingredient in sanctification is gratitude. Sanctification, which means holy living, the process of becoming holy in your life, is the doctrine of gratitude. We do not manifest holiness of life to ensure we are saved. We do it to show gratitude to God, right?